From the hidden mysteries of prehistory to the loud and out there present, the concept of magic has fascinated, enchanted, and bewitched our minds, bodies, and souls. Join me with your favorite blend of caffeinated ambrosia as I discuss the historical and cultural significance of magic with a smattering of pop culture. I'm your host, J.R. L'Esperance, and this is Coffee and Conjure. And welcome to episode 5, Indian Magic. In this episode, we're going to whisk ourselves across the globe to the Indian subcontinent and learn a bit about how they developed throughout ancient times, and then we'll head on into the magic. But first, on to what I am drinking. So as far as I can tell, um, in India, you know, coffee isn't really the the main drink. But tea seems to be a very popular choice. And while I probably would have gone with chai tea, I didn't have any chai tea on hand, so I am drinking lemon and ginger tea. Twinings. I think it's called, I think that's how you pronounce it, twinings. Now, I'm really not a huge hot tea drinker or really even a iced tea drinker, but every so often when I feel a sore throat coming on, <laughs> that's when I break out the tea. But usually my co- my go-to drink is coffee, but I figured since, you know, trying to keep in in theme, then I will just suck it up and drink the tea. had to do the sip for sound effect because I'm drinking the tea. That's the tea. Speaking of tea, let me know via email or social media what you're drinking as you listen to this episode. Before I begin, I want to say that I will freely admit my knowledge of history is very much Western. I don't know much about the history of India So in my research for this episode, I learned as much as you will learn, really. And I apologize in advance if I misinterpreted anything or report something incorrectly. And also, pronunciations are to the best of my ability. Please, if I pronounce anything incorrectly, uh, correct my pronunciation, because I do like to um, pronounce things right. Okay. Actually, that's not. That's pretty tasty. Let's dive in. Today, India is a country of about 1.4 billion people, and it's very richly diverse in many ways. The Himalayan mountains to the northwest, the Ghats Mountains in the south, and the mountain passes of the northeast have influenced the development of Indian history for thousands of years. Not to mention monsoon season and the various rivers that have carved through the land. The archaeological record has people inhabiting parts of the subcontinent of India as far back as 2 million years ago. 
Archaeologists have uncovered stone tools dating to the Paleolithic era, as well as pottery from the Neolithic. We knew there was a migration of sorts into India in the first couple millennia BCE, but we didn't really know much about the prehistoric periods up to that point. That is, until in the 1920s, when archaeologists discovered the early settlement sites of Harappa and Mahendradero. This was an amazing find, because much like archaeology still does today, the entire history of India shifted. Before, no one had any clue there was a civilization before the Aryan invasions, which we will get to here in a bit. Harappa and Mahendradero date back to the early 3rd and 4th millennia BCE, which, in case you didn't know, is super old. Both of these ancient cities developed near the Indus River in the northeastern part of the country. So, you guessed it, India began as a river valley civilization much like Egypt and Mesopotamia. Look, I'm telling you, these rivers were essential in the evolution of human society, which speaks to the importance of water in general to human survival and propagation. Harappa and Mahendradero, as far as archaeologists can tell, was a part of the Indus civilization which lasted from 3300 to about 1700 BCE. They are just two of a handful of sites established by the Indus civilization thousands of years ago along the Indus River and its tributaries. Over the years, as archaeologists have excavated, they noticed the layout of Harappa and Mahendradero were remarkably similar, despite being about 350 miles apart. They both had a necropolis, which is a hill with buildings on top that, you know, allow for strategic defense, being on top of a hill, having the high ground, as Obi-Wan Kenobi would say. The rest of the city sprawled out in the shadow of the Acropolis, where, you know, most people lived. Generally, on top of the Acropolis, any Acropolis are kind of like the administrative buildings. Um, we'll probably talk more about this when we get to Greek magic um, in another couple of episodes. There is also evidence of assembly halls in these cities and a slew of other types of buildings, including those most likely used for religious purposes. In Mahenjadera, they had something called the Great Bath, which actually had a water supply system, including sewers. There was also most likely a granary where a supply of grain and other crops could be stored. Now, I don't know about you, but when I hear water system and sewer in reference to an ancient society, I automatically think they must have been pretty darn advanced. And indeed, these cities were examples of complex organization and engineering feats. Their economy, what evidence we have for it, seems to have been well developed. Their material culture showed a knack for ceramic pottery, which was probably one of their exports. There is evidence of trade outside of the Indus River Valley, as archaeologists have found Harappan seals all the way in Mesopotamia. 
they also apparently used a system of weights and measures based on binary numbers and the decimal system. But if you're like me, you hear math speak and immediately get the sweats and shakes. <clears throat> Their governmental system was most likely a theocracy, much like the other River Valley civilizations we've discussed thus far. This, again, means that the state is both a political and religious entity, oftentimes where the king is seen as a god ruler. The Indus civilization most likely started out as a city-state system, like our friends over in Mesopotamia, with each city having its own independent government. But later in the period, there was some uniformity amongst the state's culture and government, which might suggest unification of some sort. What caused the decline of the Indus civilization? We really can't say for sure. Due to the presence of skeletons with evidence of violence, archaeologists thought, once upon a time, the Aryan invasions possibly helped usher in their end. However, that theory has lost traction over the years. There's also a theory that the decline came suddenly around 1800 to 1700 BCE due to climate changes. Some archaeologists believe the people of these cities had to leave suddenly for whatever reason. Perhaps it was due to tectonic activity, which caused the rivers to shift and flood the area. Or that tectonic activity caused the river to not flood at all, which, as we learned from ancient Egypt, could be detrimental. There's also monsoon season you have to think about, and the potential of too much rainfall and no ways to adapt. Regardless, at its height, the Indus civilization is thought to have reached across the north of India to the foothills of the Himalayas. Whatever may have caused their decline, it is extremely lucky this civilization was discovered. Because of their existence, we have even more of a sense of early Indian history, which is always invaluable. Archaeologists still study the ruins of the Indus civilization today, and our knowledge of them is ever-developing and changing. In the second millennium BCE, a nomadic group of peoples came into northwestern India through the Hindu Kush mountain passes of Afghanistan. According to their sacred hymns, they called themselves Arya. And I doubt it's because they loved Arya Stark from Game of Thrones. Where did these nomadic peoples come from? Well, it's widely believed that the Aryans came from the steppes of Eastern Europe and Central Asia, and are maybe the cousins of early Iranians. In fact, a philologist, and that's philologist, which is someone who studies the historical development of languages, named Sir William Jones, discovered a link between Sanskrit, which was the language of the Aryans, to Greek, Latin, Germanic, and Celtic languages, bringing about the theory of an Indo-European language, or Proto-Indo-European language, 
that was the progenitor of all the languages in that family. So basically, what I'm trying to say is that Sanskrit is potentially distantly related to many of the languages spoken in Europe, including English. Sanskrit would become the predominant language of India throughout ancient times and the classical period, as seen in the texts of the Hindus and Buddhists. There is a lot of debate, as always, amongst the academic crowd of when the Aryans came and in what numbers. Maybe they came in waves, maybe they came all at once. Ultimately, archaeologists and historians believe the Aryans came around 1500 BCE and their dominance lasted until about 500 BCE and settled mostly in northwestern India. The sacred hymns I mentioned of the Aryans, called the Vedas, played a huge role in the development of Indian society and the development of Hinduism and Buddhism as religions. The Aryans brought horses and chariots to India, probably, and used them in their, to their advantage during conflicts against the indigenous populations. They weren't a hugely formidable force, however, military that is, but instead were made up of a bunch of different tribes who actually fought each other quite often. According to the Rig Veda, one part of the Vedas, the Aryans saw the indigenous people as their enemies and wrote extensively about their god, Indra, helping them to defeat their foes. They also spoke of Agni, god of fire, who helped burn down their settlements to make way for Aryan victory. Alright, ready for a quick extra credit lesson and question? In linguistics, there is a concept called cognates, which is basically two words from separate languages that have the same origins. So oftentimes they look similar and they sound similar. So as I said above, Agni is the Vedic god of fire. The word Agni, spelled A-G-N-I, is a cognate to a word in Latin. Any ideas which word in Latin? Email me your answer. As time passed, the Aryans settled into life on the Indian landscape, ushering in what historians call the Vedic period of India. They eventually transitioned from nomadic tribes to settled agriculturists, setting up irrigation systems from rivers to their farms. Once they'd mastered the use of iron, they also began clearing out parts of the jungles, which then became more farmland. Over time, the Aryans began to spread their civilization further out, over to the Ganges River region and the foothills of the Himalayas. Because these once nomadic Aryans had settled, their society began to change. Conflict worsened with the indigenous peoples, and their internal hierarchy became more and more stratified and rigid. Trade and some crafts 
prospered and small state entities began to crop up. This period, often called the Late Vedic Period, was seen as the foundation for India's society as we know it today. Throughout the early Vedic age, there was some degree of social division, recognizing that certain people were more important and more honored than others, and were therefore higher up on the social hierarchy food chain. For example, even in the earliest days, there was a distinction between being a regular free member of the tribe and being a warrior, as well as between being a king or a leader and being a priest. Once they began to settle down in this late Vedic period, they interacted more and more with the indigenous peoples of India, and their social structure grew more and more strict. Four distinct levels of society emerged, the Brahmins, Kshatriyas, Vaishyas, and Shudras. The Brahmins were the priest caste, the Kshatriyas were warriors, Vaishyas were traders and cattle raisers and farmers, and finally the Shudras were generally seen as the laboring class. The indigenous peoples of India and the slaves they had, um, the, Ar the Aryans had, were no doubt seen as the lowest class, which might eventually become called the untouchables. These separate groups were referred to as Varna, which was a word that meant type, color, or order. Eventually, the word caste was also used. There is a hymn in the Rig Veda of the formation of the four Varna to justify the classifications. And of course, it has to do with a deity. Quote, when they divided Purusha, how many portions did they make? What did they call his mouth, his arms? What did they call his thighs and feet? The Brahmin was his mouth. Of both his arms, the Kshatriyas made. His thighs became the Vaishyas. From his feet, the Shudra was produced. Unquote. I find this whole concept interesting, mostly because the people responsible for compiling and passing on the information contained in the Vedas were, oh, I don't know, the priests. Conveniently, who was at the top of this batting order? The priest class, or as they called them, the Brahmins. The Varna were general designations, and from what I understand of this, within those designations came the Jatis. The Jatis were a social status based on the family a person is born into. These distinctions could be based on the tribe your family is from, the occupation your family has, or even the geography of where your family came from. The full-fledged caste system won't fully develop until a much later period, but there is a clear division. The strictness of the caste system developed over time based on society and how it changed. 
including the treatment of women. For example, the Aryans held in high regard the concept of ritual impurity. If you were ritually impure, then you were at the bottom of the heap. Of course, the Aryans generally saw the indigenous populations as being in this category, which leads me to believe the caste system was in part designed to maintain the superiority of the Aryans. Government in the Vedic period was also one of evolution. When the Aryans first arrived, their tribes actually functioned as more republics, and it wasn't until the later Vedic period, during the time where these nomadic peoples began to settle, that the idea of kingship took hold. The kings were first elected by the tribe, and would then be legitimized by a ritual from the Brahmin. And voila, kingship! Archaeologists and historians that have studied India determined that part of the king's job was to keep the cosmic order and the fertility of the earth. Sound familiar? Well, the pharaohs of Egypt also had this function. Religion also evolved throughout the Vedic period. As the Vedic religion developed, some of the population became rather disenchanted with the emphasis on ritual sacrifices, mostly made by those in the wealthy class, along with the Brahmin who conducted the sacrifice for these wealthy donors. Thus, religions like Buddhism and others formed in response as sometimes atheistic, ascetic, and ethical systems. Out of the Vedic period came the Classical period. This is characterized by the appearance of more complex urban areas developed from the Aryans' tribes that settled. Out of the Aryan clans came crude kingdoms run by kings legitimized by the Brahmin with ritual sacrifices, the king would have to occasionally renew and strengthen his power with other sacrifices as the years went on. These small monarchies were called Mahajanapada, or Great Communities. There were 16 of them in the Ganges River Basin area, all having arisen from those Aryan tribal kingdoms. There is said to have been a second urbanization period, where instead of Harappa and Mahenjadero in the northeast, there were com complex cities built near the Ganges River instead of the Indus River. This period of advancement and urbanization ushered in the age of the great empires, specifically of the Maurya and the Gupta. The Mauryan Empire came first and lasted from about 322 to 184 BCE. The empire was founded by Chandragupta Maurya, who took advantage of a power vacuum created by the invasion of Alexander the Great. When Alexander left due to a mutiny amongst his troops, the 16 Mahajanapada had fallen and Chandragupta Maurya took up power. His empire made up much of the borders of what we know of modern India and was the first example of a unified India. Perhaps the greatest of the Mauryan kings 
Ahsoka, or Ashoka, came to power around 268 BCE to 233 BCE. Important trade routes were established throughout the country, linking far-off regions to each other, as well as trade routes to foreign areas. Ahsoka was also big into Buddhism, and sent many people around India and even outside of India to spread the teachings of the Buddha. His reign is generally one of peace and prosperity, characterized by building projects and even the banning of hunting, which also probably meant no animal sacrifice, as well as good diplomatic relationships with civilizations in Asia and also Europe. Other parts of the legacy of the Mauryan Empire include free hospitals, vet clinics, and good roads. You need those good roads for the trade routes, of course. The Mauryan Empire collapsed when a general staged a coup. And after that came a succession of empires and kingdoms that rose and fell until the Gupta Empire arrived on scene in the 3rd century CE. It lasted until about 550 CE. Because of Ahsoka, Buddhism became fairly prevalent throughout India, and Hinduism continued to develop. The Gupta Empire contributed by bringing back a version of the Vedic religion that had once been popular to the Aryans. They introduced Shiva and Vishnu into the existing pantheon, and they de-emphasized the importance of ritual sacrifice as purification, and instead said that salvation could come in many other ways. The Gupta Empire is often considered the golden age of India by historians, and enjoyed around a 200-year rule. Their legacy also includes advances in math, they came up with the concept of zero, medicine, they realized that sometimes a bone, a broken bone, needed to be set first. Astronomy, like the concept of around Earth and studying of eclipses. Textiles and literature. Ancient India is one of those periods often overlooked by standard curriculums in public education. I'll be honest. When I teach the Virginia Standards for India and World History... I do them in, well, one day, alongside the standards I teach about ancient China. I hate that I do it this way, but with state testing and the pacing we have to keep to, the time spent on most things non-Western are woefully short. However, in doing the research for this episode, I feel like I've learned more about India's history than I have in 12 years of public education. And, you know, now that I'm reflecting on it, I really don't recall there ever having been a class on India in my undergraduate career either. All of that to say, and I'm going to get on my soapbox here and probably stay on my soapbox until the American education system decides that really important shit happened in places other than Europe and America. All right, so... Let's move on to talk about something other than my frustration with the state of the education system. Okay, so, beginning with some familiar prehistoric magic, 
megaliths have been found in India. Remember those from the Origins of Magic episode? These are generally rock formations where the stones are standing upright, sometimes in a circle, sometimes not. They're the structures that we can really only guess their purpose, but we like to think they may be calendars of some kind to mark the passage of celestial bodies. Or, if you're a fan of Outlander, maybe the standing stones are portals to different times. Who knows? Most of the megaliths in India are not in standing condition today, but the fact that they existed, as well in other places of the world independent of each other, is very fascinating to me. It's like humans share a brain cell across vast distances or something. Another prehistoric staple that can be found in India is that of rock art or cave art. Much like in Africa, there are hunting scenes and gathering or foraging scenes. It could have been an expression of their creativity, but it could have also been something else. If we go with the sympathetic magic angle, then these could be scenes in which ancient magicians attempted to manifest a successful hunt. As recently as this year, archaeologists discovered cave paintings in the hill forests of Mangarbani in the northern part of the country, believed to be maybe about 100,000 years old, probably the oldest in India. They depict humans, animals, and even geometric shapes. As you noticed, I generally save information for religion when I talk about magic, and as you may also recall, I do this because I wholly believe that in ancient times, magic and religion were very closely connected. So for religion, I'm going to briefly speak about Hinduism and Buddhism coming up, um, but before I do that, I wanted to cover the religion of the early Indus Valley. Not much is really known at all, so this one will be quick. Many archaeologists look to the religion of this early group with the lens that it is a precursor of a sort to the later religions of the area. But again, because there is still so little known, we can't really make that conclusion. However, an archaeologist from the 1930s said that this symbolization venerated a great male god and a mother goddess, along with certain animals and plants. It's also believed that because of the great bath at Mahenjadero, the one with the water systems and the sewers, there might have been rituals involving water. Figurines and seals have been found that show some sort of tree deity and a sort of proto-Shiva sitting in the pose of a meditating man. He is shown with three heads, an erect phallus, yes, you heard me, and is surrounded by animals. Shiva is often referred to as Shiva the Destroyer later on in, um, in Hinduism and is also god of meditation and time. He is often depicted, again later, with two or four arms, with one holding a trident. 
So anyway, this early figure might be the earliest incarnation of Shiva, sh sorry, Shiva, that is adopted by the Aryans when they arrive. Speaking of, as I mentioned previ previously, the Aryan religion is written down as sacred hymns compiled into the Vedas. There are four Vedas. The Rig Veda, Sama Veda, Yajur Veda, and Athar Veda. Each of those are then subdivided into four sections. Holy words, aka mantras, commentaries on sacrificial rituals, esoteric philosophical treatises, and instructions for rituals. These texts were divine inspirations and were preserved throughout the ages, orally passed down by Brahmin priests. Much like the Christian Bible, the Vedas consist of so many different stories and histories, and because of this, different denominations of various religions in India accept the Vedas as authority, and some do not. The Rig Veda is the oldest of the Vedas and describes early Vedic society. It is made up of about 1,000 hymns, which deal with philosophical reflections and evidence of the early caste system, as I spoke about before. The hymns also weave tales about the migration of the Aryans into India and describe the main Aryan deities. The Samaveda is made up of songs, or really hymns taken from the Rig Veda and put with music. The Yajurveda is basically meant to be a handbook for priests carrying out ritual sacrifices. It contains the mantras, or holy words, as well as the instructions of what to do. The Atharveda is probably the youngest of the Vedas, and is also often seen as inferior. The author is allegedly Atharvan, a priest who figured out how to create fire and establish worship of fire. This is the Popular Beliefs book, which includes the idea that the world contains evil spirits seeking to harm anyone not protected by magic. In the late Vedic period, Indian philosophy and worldview began to change. They were skeptical of their gods of the Rig Veda. So two new concepts appeared, karma and samsara. Karma, you may have heard of, is the idea that you will be held accountable for your deeds in your current life, but also in your next life, and a past life. That is called samsara, the cycle of life, death, and rebirth. So, reincarnation. Some scholars um, think this concept might have come from the indigenous peoples. So, maybe the Indus civilization given, you know, passed on to the Aryans. But again, that's something we'll never know. Early Vedic religion had a reliance on sacrificial rites and the magic they held. These sacrificial rites were outlined in various parts of the Vedic texts. The Vedic religion is centered mostly around these ritual sacrifices, where the Brahmins pay super attention to the details so as to have maximum effect. The importance of sacrifice is written about over and over in the Rig Veda. 
A couple of examples of ritual sacrifice from the Rig Veda are the Ashvamedha, or horse sacrifice. This is associated with kings and kingship. The king would choose a horse, usually a stallion. It would be consecrated, blessed, and after the king and his comrades <clears throat> would follow the horse as it roamed for a year. Wherever the horse went, the sovereignty of his master was declared, and if that sovereignty was contested, it was then defended by his soldiers or his comrades. After the year was up, the horse was slaughtered for sacrifice, and the chief queen was required to mimic copulation with the dead animal. Yes, again, you heard me right. Other rituals include various fire rituals that include pouring milk into a fire or throwing in various herbs. It is theorized that this is a holdover from the Aryans being related to Iranians, who in ancient times followed the religion of Zoroastrianism, but more on Zoroastrianism in a later episode. All philosophical thoughts and secret, no secret knowledge about salvation and the nature of deity were collected and put into the Upanishads, and scholars believe it to be the foundation for Hinduism, both the earliest form and the form it has taken today, as well as Buddhism. Much like Egyptians, there were different sets of gods worshipped in India at different times. For the Vedic pantheon, we have lists in the Rig Veda. For example, there's Indra, who used thunderbolts and groups of charioteers to beat the indigenous peoples. There is also Surya and Savatir, who were chariot-driving sun gods. Vishnu, at this time, was a minor sun deity. Agni was the keeper of the sacred flame for mystical sacrifice. Varuna was the ethical and judging god. Some of these Vedic deities will eventually be reworked and used in the Hindu pantheon, which I will get to in a moment. But first, mantras. You may have heard of a mantra before. It's generally a word or saying that you use to kind of hype yourself up. In Vedic texts and later Hindu texts, Mantras almost take on a magic spell quality. You might also use them in meditation. One of the most popular is Om, which is a mantra meant to represent Brahman, Brahma's first manifestation. It's a core idea or a reminder. Another one is Om Navashiva, which is a petition to the god Shiva meant to purify and heal. The five symbols, or sorry, syllables, might also reflect the elements, fire, water, air, earth, and space. You might use mantras during ritual, or you might use mantras on their own, like, like in a prayer or something. Either way, I, I really do kind of see these as words for a spell. Okay, so let me take a quick sip of tea. 
Hinduism is said to have been established somewhere between 2300 and 1500 BCE and most likely developed from the religion of the Aryans or at least took on aspects of the religion as well as potentially took on aspects of the religion of the ancient indigenous peoples such as such as those at Harappa or Mohenjo-daro I say Hinduism includes elements of the Aryans religion because there is evidence of assimilation of some Vedic gods as I previously mentioned, Shiva and Vishnu um, were brought over, as well as Narayana and Krishna. Hinduism, during the classical period of India, took on its classical form and became more of a devotional religion. However, there were also aspects of local regional religions being assimilated, as well as practicing religion as a family or community unit. There are even elements of Buddhism in the classical form of Hinduism. As with many religions, Hinduism has several branches of philosophies and denominations. And because it has had about 2,000 years to interact with Buddhism, like I said, it shares a few of these philosophies and tenets. But I want to get to Buddhism next. Denominations are sometimes based on who they view as the supreme god. For example, those that follow Vaishnavism see Vishnu as the supreme god. Those that follow Shaivism see Shiva as the supreme god. Of course, that's not the only difference between these denominations, but that is probably the most basic. In Hinduism, they believe in many gods, goddesses, saints, ascetics, seers, heroes, and other divine beings. The deities also have benevolent aspects and malevolent aspects. The main gods are the Trimurti, three main deities. The creator god is called Brahma and isn't really worshipped much because it is believed that once you have done your job as a creator, it's over, and the other two of the um, triumvirate here are said to keep up the earth. And those other two were Shiva and Vishnu. These gods manifest in different ways in different aspects. So other gods are seen as incarnations of one of the main gods. For example, Krishna, hero in the Bhagavad Gita, is an incarnation of Vishnu, or a part of Vishnu. They call these separate aspects or incarnations of gods that appear on earth avatars. Hinduism has its own set of mythological stories that are as fascinating and out of this world as other mythologies in other parts of the world. The main themes of Hindu myth are day and night, light and darkness, creation and destruction, and good and evil. So a lot of duality here. Creation is cyclical, Though, because of the cycle of life, death, and rebirth, the Hindus believed, eras are begun, they slowly decay, then, then they are destroyed. After a time, a new era begins, 
as does a new cycle. Okay, so one of my favorite deities slash myths is any pertaining to the goddess Kali. She is the perfect example of the Hindu gods and their various attributes. Kali is both a goddess of creation and destruction. So she is seen as both nurturing and vicious. She is seen as an aspect of the mother goddess Durga, or sometimes called Devi. Think of Kali the next time your mother says, I brought you into this world and I can take you right out of it. (laughs) Anyway, Kali is often depicted as having blue skin, black hair, often kind of wild looking, forearms, and sometimes fangs. Her eyes are red, presumably with bloodthirstiness, and she wears a wreath of human heads around her neck and a skirt of human arms. So, Kali, badass goddess, sprung forth from the enraged Durga during a conflict with the demon Raktabija and his armies. Kali goes on an absolute rampage, slaughtering the demons left, right, and center. She even feasted on them, gobbling them up like I would and uh, I would mashed potatoes on Thanksgiving. So she drank Raktabija's blood as well, just like straight up sucked it down, and the blood just kind of ran from her mouth and down her chin. When she drained him dry, she flung his corpse to the ground like a freaking mic drop. But she wasn't done yet. Oh no. Kali, drunk off the blood of her enemies, and her rage and fury began dancing a victory dance. She danced all over the corpses of the slain, crushing them beneath her feet. Kali continued to dance, trouncing over the land with no stopping her. When the other gods saw this, fearing for the safety of the rest of the world, they called upon the god Shiva to stop her. Shiva actually being her husband. When Shiva tried to call out to Kali, she didn't hear him over her dancing and maniacal shrieking. He tried again and again, but to no avail, until finally he threw himself at her feet And a few moments after she had trounced over him a bit, she realized what she had done and returned to the calm version of herself. A fantastic display of female rage, if you ask me. The language of Hinduism is called Sanskrit, as I mentioned earlier, and their sacred texts include the Vedas as well, which of course I've talked about, the Puranas, and many, many, many other scriptures. They also hold the literary epics, the Ramayana and the Mahabharata, in high regard. Much like in the Christian religion and also in Islam, Hindus have a network of holy places that they pilgrimage to all throughout India. One such place is Varanasi, believed to have been founded by Shiva himself. So it's seen as a very, very holy place. The Ganges River is a sacred place as well that Hindus will make a pilgrimage to, and they will bathe in the waters for purification purposes. 
They might even bring back some of the water home to be used for later rituals. Sometimes they even had their ashes scattered on the Ganges, as cremation is the predominant death ritual. Everyday worship for Hindus happens in temples called Mandir, and they are usually dedicated to one god or goddess. The basic worldview or belief of Hinduism is that people possess a spirit or soul that has a spark of the divine in it called Atman. And that spark came from Brahma, the creator. Everything has this divine spirit, from animals to people and so on. This spirit is not confined by the body or the mind, transcending such physical things. At their core, all beings are full of peace, joy, and wisdom. And in order to truly experience this, you have to purify the mind and hone your senses in a work called yoga. Yoga means union, a joining of yourself with your inner spirit. This coincides with a concept called maya. It is the idea that we as humans do not see the world as it really is. We superimpose complex structures on the world that cause suffering and injustice. And on top of that, humans think paradoxically of knowing to do the right thing, but never actually doing it. I know, interesting concepts here. Like Buddhists, Hindus also believe in reincarnation and karma and hope to one day break the cycle of reincarnation. In the modern era, there are about 1 billion people around the world who practice Hinduism. So it's, a, it's one of the five major religions of the world. One of the other main religions of India and also the world is Buddhism. According to the historical record, there was a figure, Siddhartha Gautama, or the Buddha as he is known, that existed sometime between 563 and 483 BCE. We know he lived, traveled, and taught his philosophies, but we can't say for certain much about the details of his life. However, according to tradition, this is how he came to establish Buddhism. Siddhartha was born during the Mahajanapada period, most likely to the Shakya clan, somewhere in either modern Nepal or India. He is often said to have been a prince, prophesied to be either a great ruler or a Buddha. Because his father wanted him to be a great ruler, in order to keep him at home, Siddhartha grew up in opulence, receiving everything he ever needed or wanted. He eventually married and had a son, and he soon came to realize that despite his sheltered upbringing, there was suffering and death in the world, and he would not be immune from either of those things. So he decided to set out on a religious journey to find the type of existence where you couldn't die, couldn't get sick, and didn't suffer. A little something we might call nirvana. And no, not the 90s grudge band. Grunge band, not grudge. Grunge. <laughs> nirvana is when you actually break the cycle of death and rebirth and are therefore free 
from the sufferings of life. So Siddhartha sets out to learn whatever he can. He learns from several yoga teachers, including the art of meditation, but he never really learns from them how to end suffering once and for all. So he tries asceticism. This is basically abstinence from sensual pleasures, including food. And he fasted to the point where he lost tons of weight that he could hardly stand. But according to the texts, he had reached some kind of clarity of mind, but his body still suffered. So, you know, imagine that. His body suffered after he fasted for a long time. He continued on his quest for nirvana after. This didn't make him give up. He thought about how asceticism is too extreme of a path to take. So according to some Buddhist texts, he discovered the middle path, which involves self-moderation from indulgences. So don't overeat and don't starve yourself. Go the middle path. Realizing that he might be able to gain insight by meditating more, Siddhartha sat beneath a pipal tree. Here he went through several states of meditation, going deeper and deeper into a clearer mind. There are some tales of him even being tempted by a demon-like entity, trying to get him off the path to nirvana and back to indulging. But Siddhartha continued, until he awakened from this state, having finally become the Buddha, having reached nirvana and the secret to the end of suffering. His teachings eventually form the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path to Enlightenment. He continued to sit under the tree for a few more weeks, meditating on his awakening and whether he should share his revelations to others. The Buddha gives his first teaching at an animal park, often believed to be a deer park. He spoke about the middle path, about moderation. He continued to lay out his thoughts about the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. The Four Noble Truths, by the way, are 1. The Truth of Suffering 2. The Truth of the Origins of Suffering 3. The Truth of the Stopping of Suffering and 4. The Truth of the Path to the Stopping of Suffering So basically, know that there is suffering in the world, know where it came from, that it can be stopped, and how it can be stopped. The Eightfold Path is the path to the stopping of set suffering. <laughs> there are three themes that kind of um, go with the Eightfold Path. They are wisdom, ethical conduct, and mental discipline. Within those themes are the eight actions to take on the path to enlightenment. They are have the right understanding, the right thought, the right speech, the right action, the right livelihood, the right effort, the right mindfulness, and the right concentration. After his first sermon at the animal park, 
Buddha began traveling and spreading his teachings, creating a following. His ideas evolve, including monastic ideals, so monks and things like that, and lay ideals, so, you know, the average person, what they can do. Eventually, Buddha reached his mortal death. He was unwell in the last few months of his life, but continued traveling and teaching. He then entered into a meditative state, descending deeper and deeper, and eventually passed from the mortal coil. Though, of course, he never truly dies, merely fulfills nirvana. Other concepts of Buddhism include rebirth, karma, and dharma. Rebirth is just that, reincarnation, where you have lived many lives over the millennia and your soul is continuously reborn after you die. Karma is the deeds you do during life that powers your rebirth cycle. Karma can be good and bad deeds. Karma builds over your lifetimes and can affect your path to nirvana. Dharma is just the name for all of the Buddha's teachings. So, okay, here's the pop culture nerd in me. Whenever I hear Dharma, I think of the TV show Lost. Maybe it's not a total coincidence that the Dharma Initiative's logo is an octagon. Eight sides for the Eightfold Path. Though I did do some further research, and actually the Dharma logo is a nod to Taoist mysticism, which will probably actually be something that I go into in the next episode when we talk about China. Um, so another quick aside about this. I don't think I knew this, but Lost fans, did you know that Dharma is actually an acronym? And it stands for the Department of Heuristics and Research on Material Applications. I had zero idea about this. <laughs> anyway, back to Buddhism. In some traditions of Buddhism, there are actually um, divine beings associated with different teachings and, you know, your life and rebirth journey. These include bodhisattvas, devas, asuras, mara, and yaksha. Bodhisattvas are any person who has reached the mind of awakening, but has not reached full Buddhahood. A deva is a divine being who is not necessarily immortal and not necessarily immune to suffering. They had different functions and were neither good nor bad. Asuras are often seen as either titan-like creators or demigods at constant war with the devas. Mara literally means death and was the tempter of Buddha as he sat beneath the tree meditating. And finally, the yakshas are nature spirits and they are usually there to help you. There are several types of Buddhism that developed over the centuries. Theravada, Mahayana, and Vajrayana. The former two are the main branches stemming from Siddhartha's teachings, and the latter is a sort of esoteric version that developed during the medieval period. Today, Buddhism has taken on other shapes, including the 
modern version that some people practice today. Um, it came out of the colonial era of India when Western ideas met Eastern ideas. Buddhism um, in the ancient period spread to Japan and other parts of Asia, and it took on a whole other shape in those countries as well. Modern Buddhism has taken on more of the kind of mindfulness aspects than less and less of the spiritual, though that's not going to be true for everyone. Um, much of modern Buddhism focuses on meditation, like I said, the mindfulness, um, being in the moment as well as what that looks like with, you know, the science coming out of the mind and the body. I bet that if you're listening to this podcast, you've heard the word chakra. You may not exactly know what it means, but you know it's a thing. In its earliest form in ancient India, a chakra is a single symbol that was generally associated with Vishnu, god of preservation. Chakra means disc or wheel and is usually depicted as such, having six or eight spokes on the wheel. It is meant to symbolize protection and divine power. In other iterations, the chakra is also seen with fire emanating from it which might be a nod to it having been a symbol of the sun at some point. If you have heard of chakras before, then you're probably more familiar with their kundalini yoga incarnation. These are the chakras of the body. Six energy spots following your spine, starting with the root chakra at your tailbone, the sacral chakra, chakra at your belly button, the solar plexus chakra at kind of your stomach level, the heart chakra at, you guessed it, your heart, the throat chakra, the third eye chakra, which is between your eyebrows, and the crown chakra at the top of your head. Starting with the root chakra, each one has a color from the visible light spectrum. So think the rainbow, think Roy G. Biv. So the root chakra is um, usually seen as being red. The sacral is orange. Solar plexus is yellow. Heart is green. Throat is blue. Third eye is indigo. And the crown is violet or sometimes white. And as I said before, they are energy spots in your body, and each spot corresponds to a different energy. The root chakra is about stability and safety. The sacral chakra is about pleasure and sensuality. The solar plexus is about strength and self-esteem. The heart is love and acceptance. The throat is communication and honesty. The third eye is imagination and intuition. And finally, the crown chakra is knowledge and reaching out to your higher self. So the idea is if you feel unstable or unsafe, then maybe your root chakra might be out of whack. If you're having communication issues, then maybe it's your, your throat chakra that's out of whack. To fix this, you might do some meditation exercises. 
remember mantras? Each chakra has its own mantra. So flipping to kind of yoga and meditation, um, yoga is the act of yoking. It is a study that combines physical exercise of the body to improve health and also mental exercise to achieve in an attempt to achieve liberation from the reincarnation cycle. There are a ton of different yoga disciplines and schools like the Kundalini Yoga, Bhakti Yoga, which is meant to be a devotional practice to the divine, Karma Yoga, which stresses selfless acts, and Janana Yoga, which centers on experience of inner knowledge and trying to see, to see the divine in all things by stripping away physical and mental barriers. The yoga you might recognize today is based on Raja Yoga, which is purifying your mind through meditation, mindfulness, and movement. While they may be different, the thing they all have in common is their drive for discipline, mental concentration, and to remove ignorance. As we've been talking about throughout this whole episode, meditation is key to many aspects of the religions of India. Meditation is not just for spiritual use, though that's how it began, but there are tests being done by scientists studying the effects of meditation on the brain. There is some proof so far that meditation reduces depression, anxiety, and stress. The whole idea of meditation is to practice mindfulness, being in the moment, and also emptying your mind. Which, trust me, it's easier said than done. As someone who tries to meditate, it's difficult to stop racing thoughts. And then, you know, that's the whole point of meditation, though. As the Buddha did, meditation is a path to nirvana. Or, again, breaking free of being born and reborn over and over. Meditation is a part of the path that will alleviate earthly suffering. It is used in many parts of the Western world now, including certain magical practices of modern witches who see meditation as the way to put themselves in a certain mindset to do their magical workings. So, a few minutes ago, a bit ago really, I um, went over the four... Um, books that were a part of the Vedas. The last one that I mentioned was the Artha And the Artha is made up of a bunch of spells and charms and things like that for various um, healing spells to love spells to defeating your enemy in battle. On sacred dash texts.com there is an old translation of the Artha and if you're ever bored check it out until then here are a few examples that I wanted to share because I thought they were interesting this is a charm against fear quote 
As heaven and earth are not afraid and never suffer loss or harm, even so, my spirit, fear now not thou. As day and night are not afraid, nor ever suffer loss or harm, even so, my spirit, fear not thou. As sun and moon are not afraid, nor ever suffer loss or harm, even so, my spirit, fear not thou. As Brahmanhood and princely power fear not, nor suffer loss or harm, even so, my spirit, fear not thou. As truth and falsehood have no fear, nor ever suffer loss or harm, even so, my spirit, fear not thou. As what hath been and what shall be, fear not, nor suffer loss or harm, even so, my spirit, fear not thou. End quote. So again, these are charms. And the charms can be said as, you know, like a prayer or a magic spell, or you could say it over an amulet, kind of imbuing an amulet with the power of what this charm is meant to be. So this next one is a man's love charm. Let's see if I can do this in a central voice. As the wind shake this tuft of grass hither and thither on the ground, so do I stir and shake thy mind, that thou mayest be in love with me, my darling, never to depart. Yea, Aswins, lead together, yea, unite and bring the loving pair. Now have the fortunes of you twain, now have your vows and spirits met, when eagles calling out aloud are screaming in the joy of health. Then to my calling let her come, as to the arrow's neck the shaft. Let what is inward turn outside, let what is outward be within. Seize and possess, O plant, the mind of maidens rich in every charm. Seeking a husband, she hath come, and I came longing for a wife even as a loudly neighing steed, may fate and fortune have I met. I don't really know if that last part is supposed to be calling a woman a uh, steed, but um, this man might want to think, uh, rethink his uh, charm. <laughs> okay, in this last one, a charm to avert evil dreams and transfer them to an enemy. Now have we conquered and obtained. We have been freed from sin today. Let morning with her light dispel that evil dream that frightened us. Bear that away to him who hates, away to him who curses us, to him whom we abhor. To him who hates us do we send it hence. May the goddess dawn in accord, in, in accord with speech, and the goddess speech in accord with dawn. The lord of dawn in accord with the lord of speech, and the lord of speech in accord with the lord of dawn. Carry away to such a one fiend, hostile demons and sadanvas, kumbikas, dushikas, and piyakas. Evil daydream, evil dream and sleep. Wishes for boons that will not come, thoughts of poverty, the snares of the draw who never releases. 
This, O Agni, let the gods bear off to such a one that he may be a fragile, good-for-nothing eunuch. So, I have to say that I learned a crap ton researching for this episode. While it was information overload at times, it was a ton of fun to dive more into a period that I didn't get to learn much about in school. So we got to see India's very early beginnings with the advanced cities of Harappa and Mahenjadero. Then we learned the real kind of meat and potatoes of the origins of Indian society with the Vedic period and the nomadic Aryans. I didn't make this comment earlier, and I'm not going to go into much detail in this episode, as it will be revisited in a future one. The Aryans were not a mythical race of supreme beings that were white, blonde-haired, and blue-eyed. Let's just get that out there. Let's also just talk for a second about the stealing and perverting of the symbol of the swastika which is found in many ancient cultures, especially in India. And it's a symbol for divinity, spirituality, good luck, and prosperity. While the orientation of the swastika is different for the Nazi symbol, I just want to state for the record that it was not always a symbol of hate. Anyway, I don't really want to end on that note. So, continuing on... India's ancient golden age came with the Maurya and the Gupta empires, in which many of the contributions from them are concepts that we use today in the Western world. Once again, we must pay credit where credit is due. As far as magic, I think that in India, most of their magic is steeped in their rituals. If not in their rituals, then in the work they do for their ultimate goal. Freedom from the cycle of birth and rebirth. Speaking of, I have homework for you. Because I care about your health and well-being, dear listener, and because I care that you eventually break through your own cycle of death and rebirth, I challenge you to try meditation. Go to YouTube, search for short guided meditation videos. Sit in a quiet place with no distractions. Yes, even your phone. Put it somewhere else, way far away from you. And just listen to the meditation. Lean into it. Sit comfortably, close your eyes, whatever makes you, you know, whatever makes it feel comfortable. It may feel weird and awkward at first, but I promise you, it will be worth it if you, you know, choose to make this a practice of. So anyway, send me an email and let me know through the email or social media how it goes. Coffee and Conjure podcast was created, written, produced, and edited by me, J.R.L. Esperance. Our theme music is composed by Emily Nafius, and our gorgeous podcast cover art was created by Neve at Neve Does Designing. Please like us on Facebook by searching Coffee and Conjure Podcast, and find us on Instagram and Twitter at
Coffee Conjure PD. If you'd be so kind, subscribe, rate, and leave a review to let me know how I'm doing. And finally, don't forget to send in your questions, commentary, and coffee suggestions to coffeeandconjure at gmail.com. Until next time, stay enchanted. <laughs>